You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Wirt and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Welcome back, manufactured listeners. We are so excited to launch season two with this thought-provoking conversation with Hansika Singh. But before we get into that, we want to share some changes we're making in season two. First, we heard you. You want shorter episodes, and you want it to be easier to find the content that's relevant to you. To this end, we will be、uh, dividing most of our interviews into two episodes, making each episode about thirty minutes. Check your notes for more details. We will indicate which topics are covered at which moment, so you can skip around to the sections that interest you. We're also mixing things up a bit. Like in season one, some episodes will be interviews, but we're also going to throw in some thematic episodes focused on specific topics. We're also introducing a new episode format we're calling Chronicles. Think of it as story time—the kind of life tales you'd share with a close friend over dinner, or around the campfire a couple of beers in. Still relevant to our goal of diversifying the narrative around sustainability, but a little more personal. And the last thing we're doing to switch things up is launch a new mini series. It's called Loose Threads. It's biweekly mini episodes tying candid questions to honest answers. These episodes will be available in the same RSS feed that you always use to listen to Manufactured. So if you're already subscribed on your preferred podcast platform, you'll see them automatically, and they'll be in addition to the weekly episodes we're already putting out. If you are thinking, "Hmm, sounds interesting," but what is it exactly? Let's say you are a sustainability advocate with a question you'd like to ask someone further down the supply chain. But that's usually pretty difficult. Maybe you don't know who to ask, or maybe you should already know the answer, or maybe your question isn't totally politically correct, or maybe your job actually makes an honest response unlikely. Whatever the reason, we would all benefit from more sincere conversations, and that's where loose threads comes in. Submit your questions anonymously at www.manufacturedpodcast.com/loosethreads. We'll then field your questions out to relevant experts further down the supply chain to get their anonymous responses, and then we'll curate that and share the anonymous Q and A with you through our mini episodes. If you are a supplier keen to respond to questions, please get in touch via our website. We'd love to hear from you. We're really excited about this initiative and hope it'll open up space for conversations that we just can't have in any other way in any other place. But okay, that's enough about loose threads. On to this week's episode. Hansika is a sustainable fashion professional currently based in Bangalore, India. Hansika started her career in the fashion industry with H&M as a merchandiser responsible for coordinating with various factories producing H&M goods. She went on to work in consumer advocacy. Founding Ecofolk and running her own fashion boutique before ultimately landing at Forum for the Future, a leading international sustainability nonprofit working with business, governments, and civil society to accelerate the shift towards a more sustainable future. In this episode, we cover Hansika's time as a merchandiser and consumer advocate. In season one, the idea of shared responsibility came up quite a bit. First section of this episode focuses on what exactly we can or should expect of brands with regard to sustainability, and what are the limits of what we can ask of them. The second section takes on the same question, but instead of looking at brands, focusing on consumers. What is reasonable to expect of consumers? 
Next week, we'll share part two of this conversation, digging into how Hansika became an advocate of systems change, what systems change even means, and her current work with Forum for the Future. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Not much of an Instagram person? We feel you. We have a love-hate relationship with social media, too. Sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're so excited to chat with you because you've had such a, shall we say, rich and diverse journey across the fashion supply Definitely. chain. Definitely. Uh, yeah, covering so many different perspectives. Why don't we start at the very beginning? Can you tell us about your entry point to the fashion supply chain and, and the early days of your career and what you were up to? Sure. Uh, thanks, Kim. And thanks, Jesse. Uh, really, really uh, glad to be here and talking to you guys. Um, so I think in, in terms of entry point, like very early days of my career, I think I was a typical, uh, grew up in a small town and, you know, very fascinated with the brands and clothes, but they were very inaccessible. So I always wanted to like know more about how clothes are made, uh, what's the story behind brands. Uh, so ended up getting really attracted to the whole uh, field of fashion. Uh, which was ironic because in India, like if you're, a, and I was academically good, like decent, and you, I mean, there are very conventional paths in front of you. You either become an engineer or a doctor. So to be quite a rebel in that sense to like fight my way to get to, you know, fashion <laughs> school and to like the big shiny city of Delhi. Uh, so that's how I ended up in in the school where I studied apparel production. Um, and I ended up, my first job was with H&M. And I was very excited to end up uh, in, a, in a job with a brand because it's, it's like a really hard to get job in this part of the world, right? So I did a round of internships with like uh, in textile factories and apparel factories. I, I think I did my learning really well. And I was super proud that, you know, I could uh, end up in a place like H&M. And um, when I got into H&M, it was actually for an internship in my last semester and they did not hire freshers then. And I was very determined that, you know, I will <laughs> change this and, you know, I'll make them hire me. I'll work super hard. So, uh, but I think I slogged a lot. And uh, it was also the right time because they were also like questioning this policy, given, you know, how everything was changing. So I ended up getting like a full-time job with them right after college, which was kind of a big deal for me. So, yeah, that's that's how I entered into the H&M office. And uh, what I did essentially was I was a merchandiser and... Uh, most of the job was like following up on orders and looking after different styles that would come in. And I think I was reflecting on like how many pieces of underwear would I've shipped <laughs> to Europe, I think, in that period, like about 12 million, I think. And that's insane. No, right? Because it would just be numbers. And I, I went back and looked at it. I was like, oh, my God, that's an insane amount of underwear to ship in just like <laughs> a year, maybe, <laughs> to the continent of Europe. So, yeah. Um, so H&M has a buying office in Delhi who is working with the factories that are producing for H&M. And your job within all of that was basically 
if I get it right, to work as the in-between or the liaison between the buying office and those factories. Yes. yes? So we actually called it a production is- office. I mean, in H&M terms, mm-hmm. the buying office was in Stockholm and we were the production office, a liaisoning between the factories and the buying office. Okay, so how did this experience, uh, there's a lot, uh, well, let me frame it differently. I think there's a lot of conversation happening now about shared responsibility within the fashion supply chain and what that means and what that looks like and who should be responsible for what. So I'm curious to know how this experience shaped your ideas about the roles that ran, the, the role that brands have in the sustainable fashion agenda. And what are the what are the things that they should be responsible for? And maybe what are the limits of also what they can achieve from a sustainability perspective? What's reasonable to expect of them? Right. Uh, so I think uh, being in this job, I think it, it gave me a real taste of what the world of fashion looks from inside. And I think... Uh, uh, it, a lot of nuances, I think, which were hidden, like how exactly the dynamics work with factories. So a lot of power dynamics that I did not notice as an outsider were very, very visible from inside. And uh, to be honest, I was not very critical of these things. Then I, I perhaps did not have the language to even articulate or understand this. In my head, this is how it was supposed to be. It had to be a very top-down approach where uh, you go in with a with a checklist and, you know, you have your compliance sheets and you're really like... Uh, asking the factories to, you know, do everything right uh, in terms of, you know, taking care. And and I remember my graduation project was calculating like the cost of compliance for a a factory. And I was very annoyed as to why factories don't understand their responsibility, you know, and why are they looking at this as a a cause? This is for everybody's greater good. Uh, But eventually, while in this job, I could start noticing the tension that... um, what we were really doing is like everything was on the terms of the brand and there was very little agency that the factory would have at the end of the day. So, I mean, we would be so quick to move orders for two cents to another supplier. Uh, but I mean, so can you give an example when you say that that supply that everything was on the terms of the brands? Can you give an example of what that looks like or what that right. means? So what that means is that we, so as a fast fashion brand, we would want the most flexibility, right? Because the consumer needs new things in the store every week. And what that means is responding to the latest trends, right? So let's say you placed an order for an all over print in three colors. And now the supplier has gone ahead and started like, has done the sampling, has gotten the screens developed, and suddenly you come back and say, oh, I need to change this color because, you know, we we see that this particular thing is working really well. And uh, in, in the beginning, like it was ob- very obvious to me, of course, this is what the customer wants. The customer is the boss. But I would start seeing like the, the, the funny um, expectation of flexibility and one-sided flexibility, right? So you would never have this the other way. And every time we would run into, like say, delays of order from supplies and we would uh to be fair not all the time but most of the time there would be discounts you would expect discounts on orders five percent ten percent for each week right if not discounts then air shipments and the amount of times i have i had negotiated you know for air shipments when i could see that for no fault of the factory an order has been delayed because of let's say uh, challenges further down the supply chain 
I mean, it's a very unforgiving system in that sense. <laughs> it's so funny to hear yeah. you say the flexibility is never the other way around. The suppliers could never be very flexible with the shipment date. They can never go back to the buyers to say, "Sorry, can we uh, can we ship part of the goods next month or two months after?" Or or sometimes can be one month earlier. Usually, even even advanced shipment is not allowed or no, yeah, not accepted. No. Yeah, don't. And so much of what you're describing is so aligned almost verbatim with how Jessie ex described her experience as a merchandiser in China, which we talk about in detail in the first two episodes of season one. Mm. Um, and so our, if listeners are interested in learning more about how these relationships play out, you should definitely go back and listen to that um, because there's just so much to say. Um, but Okay, so you were working for a merchandiser, or you were working as a merchandiser. So how did this, I want to really push on how it affected your understanding of what a brand should or should not be responsible for from a, from a sustainability perspective. What's reasonable to expect? I think... Um... So I saw, like, I, I still see H&M as a, as a brand married to a certain business model, Uh, which I think even when I was working in there, sometimes we referred to it as a race to bottom. I remember I have this vivid memory of sitting in a in a workshop where we were looking at our competitor brands and saying, if we just remove the logos, everything looks the same. We are just, you know, same mm -hmm. discount mechanisms, uh, things changing every week. And I couldn't help but also empathize that uh, you can't really overnight transition out of this. So you have to, on one hand, sustain this beast that you're married to. Uh, and also, you know, this competing expectation of now you have to, like, just be, you know, circular and material efficient. And it. And I think I, I have a lot of respect for colleagues who continue to work in those settings because I, I know it's, it's really hard. It's a really hard ask to kind of balance both of these things. And I think it one needs to understand that you know somewhere brands are also located in the larger economic system and the unsustainability of our economic paradigm where uh, you know the the burden of economic growth in some sense is uh, you know on the how much people are consuming so i, I think that's right. where i think our expectations of brands have to be located in that context and i think that's how because i think there's a constant anxiety within a brand to uh, <clears throat> not be perceived a certain way that they don't care about people. I think they, the, at least, and this is me talking about like seven years ago, I'm sure things have changed a lot. I, I don't know. But I think that's where a lot of this top-down thinking would come in that anxiety that, you know, we really don't have the time to sit and discuss this across. This is urgent. And and since then, I think I've become a little wary of very urgent solutions because I, I see the power that comes with that urgency that um, you can afford to not listen and it's your luxury. But like, yeah, I think... So some of these questions, I think, are perhaps beyond just a brand's capacity or responsibility to address. And I think that's where more trust is needed in the industry at large, more openness, more participation, enabling participation of different perspectives. I, I don't think you can really address these hard questions without that. Right. And so I think what you said about trust is also really interesting because it's something that Jesse and I have come back to again and again and again in our conversations. And I'm curious if you reflect on your time working for a brand, like 
you describe it as very top down, the relationship with suppliers. And um, you also describe, I think, this anxiety about making sure that you're perceived as a player that cares about people, about the environment. But, and so like a lot of the people that we've taught, that Jesse and I have talked to basically describe the way of coping with this as, as a lot of it comes down to somehow to risk minimizing and minimizing your risks is effectively a way of coping with that anxiety, but it at the same time really works in opposition to or counter to more trust throughout the supply chain. Because effectively, I think a lot of times when you see like brands trying to minimize their risk, what they're actually doing is they're not minimizing it. They're just pushing it down <laughs> to somebody else so that when something happens, they can sort of legally and procedurally claim um, or absolve themselves of, of responsibility. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, or they just outsource the financial risks by outsourcing production. They first outsource financial risks. Then by all these kind of standard uh, operation procedures, as you said, Kim, procedurally they also can legally work away from other social uh, responsibilities or risks. So yeah. um, I'm just I'm thinking because it's like okay, if because a lot of times I'm asked like okay, so then what? What should we be asking? Because on the one hand, you've spoken to the limits of what we can ask of brands, right? They're part of a larger economic system. There needs to be also some responsibility on consumers who are driving, some would say driving mass consumption. Um, and and yet, on the other hand, we also see this other picture where we see that like responsibility, there is something that brands should be responsible for, but how to like pin down or articulate what exactly that is often feels very abstract. Um, so I, I don't know. Maybe in the marketing, I don't have maybe in the marketing way first, the brand needs to take some responsibilities of the uh, consuming or rented economy. I know it's a very, very big topic because actually we, we are, <laughs> every one of us, is in this system, right? Our jobs, millions, billions of people's jobs rely on this uh, economic system. And it is uh, consuming oriented. But uh, brands, maybe they can do some marketing like responsible consuming. Like, <laughs> I don't know if it's possible, but it sounds a bit uh, ironic, right? <laughs> yeah, this reminds me of a quite unusual ad in 2011 that Patagonia put out, I think in the New York Times, where it was basically like a full paid ad with a picture of a jacket and it said, don't buy this jacket. Mm. Or maybe minimum, mm. minimum starting from their purchasing practice, better purchasing. Right. Yeah, businesses need to be. Uh, so what what happens is there is a reason why uh, these businesses are located in a part of the world and the manufacturing happens in a certain part of the world, right? We're constantly chasing cheap labor, weak regulations. And I think it's businesses can no longer say that this is not our job. This is the job of the government of this country to, you know, I, I think there, there has to be that minimum expectations of business in terms of both human rights and uh, environment responsibility as to how they are behaving, even if they are not in their headquarter country. And there shouldn't be like double standards on that. And that's where I think uh, for me, I think more responsibility kind of comes into picture and 
putting more people on the table when they are having these discussions and recognizing the role that they play in in creating yeah. these unequal i think that's the key is 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 a willingness I, like i don't want to be super prescriptive about what a brand should or shouldn't do but i think for me the key is a demonstrated willingness to kind of hold up a mirror and look inward and to question how you know how their own business practices or procedures might be implicated in certain outcomes um and and that's hard because that's but what you said I, is interesting because i want to like it's Jesse and i have had a lot of interesting conversations about also um and you spoke to this a little bit the role of government because there was a Jesse and i were having a conversation i don't know maybe last week where we were talking about um an article um, of the new york times yes about a big supplier yeah. getting involved into a social news about first the labor. Yes, then it's it's uh, it's uh, migrant workers coming from Malaysia and several other countries, and mostly oh sorry, coming from um, Myanmar mostly, and work in uh, in Malaysia. Mal yeah. And then we were talking about the roles of the company and the roles of the local governments and the the governments in in Malaysia, basically. So we we're talking about the roles of responsibilities. And it was interesting because Jesse, you said to me, you were like, Kim, I don't understand, like, because uh, the brands are American or European or whatever. She was like, you were like, I don't understand why everybody always assumes that these brands should be responsible because what about the role of local government? Isn't it almost like demeaning or patronizing to say that, uh, you know, an American brand or a European brand should be more responsible for maintaining or protecting the rights of its of, of a certain country's people than its own national government? Um And I thought that was an interesting perspective because as an American, my perspective on it was, well, this is an American company who is operating abroad and therefore it should be accountable to some kind of legislation or laws determined by the American people. And if the American people, you know, don't want to support a certain type of practice, then then that brand should be should be accountable to that. But it's an interesting question because I'd never really sort of flipped that paradigm on its head. It's interesting because that article completely uh, missed, uh, missed the topic, missed the angle to they even didn't write one sentence talking about the responsibilities or the roles of the local governments or governments of another country, you know, of the migrant workers. So it just makes me think, yes, it's right. I like it too, that American public expect American brands or American companies act better than the local laws or regulations. That's good. But however, somehow I also feel a bit arrogant you know like yeah. how about the authorities and how about the other big player here why they are missing in this picture so. and you're very right jesse i've stopped watching fa a sustainable fashion documentaries for this reason they have the same narrative like here is a way of working evil people then you know somebody comes and it's all that you know very savior complex of showing people in this part of the world as you know agency less people who can only be saved by you know sustainable fashion and that's the danger of like talking about people in this language of either just as employees or just as consumers i think we're all citizens right and 
I would agree, uh, Kim, that, you know, as an American citizen, one should expect as a citizen to something from their, uh, you know, from a company that is headquartered there. And also, uh, this worker who's in a part of the country also has the right to expect that from their government that they, you know, do the bare minimum, protect them. And I think both these angles need to be played out more in our narratives. I think this is just largely missing from the narrative on sustainable fashion. Like, yeah. Right. And I think it speaks to how this need for for some sort of like on the brand, what we should expect of brands is some sort of inward looking critique or consideration or review of how they might be implicated and sort of public communication about that is really necessary as an antidote to this savior narrative. So after working for a brand, you felt a little bit disillusioned and you've hinted at this already, but you were keen to work on consumer advocacy. Can you tell us a little bit about why this was and what you did next? So I think I was disillusioned in terms of, um, okay, I am, I've worked in this big big company. I was a small cog in a big machine. Uh, and maybe the reason why they can't change is because, you know, they are really big and they have this business model. But, you know, consumers are very, you know, if, if just consumers are made more aware and if they change their buying patterns, things will change. And I, I really started seeing merit in that idea. So what I do after leaving H&M is that I, um, and I, I wanted to work on this aspect of con- conscious consumer because this word just got stuck in my head, like conscious consumer and conscious consumption. Uh, so I, I started looking for opportunities where I could, uh, you know, bring uh, what I what I know of the field and what what I'm passionate towards now. So I started doing a couple of things. I started working for this nonprofit where we would sell these T-shirts to um, educate uh, children in, in shelter homes. Uh, these children are abandoned by their parents and they are coming from very, very vulnerable conditions. So I could like, really see consumption as a, as a positive driving force and that got me really interested. So that was my immediate next assignment after H&M. And then I started questioning again that, you know, in some sense, I'm contributing to driving consumption, but like without really addressing the environment side of things. So maybe that part is missing. So with a couple of friends in Bangalore, we started this initiative called EcoFolk, uh, which was quite well received because I think Bangalore is that kind of city where this, this narrative resonates with. And we would do workshops and discussions with children and adults and small activities about educating people on, you know, where your stuff comes from, where it goes, the idea of landfills and just doing these really immersive experiential things with people and sitting in a huddle and reflecting, uh, you know, how can we change this? It was all really nice. Um, And while doing this, I I started to realize that uh, I was also to sustain myself trying to um, run a, a garment, an apparel store. And there were a couple of lines of sustainable clothing in there, which weren't really moving organic cotton clothes. I was trying to work with some handy handloom, handicraft uh, weaving clusters, uh, trying to help them, you know, pilot uh, new market linkages. It was all going in a certain direction. And I realized that consumers are, you know, all this faith that we have in, you know, the agency of consumer, it, it is actually limited by a lot of things. I think consumer is the most visible stakeholder in this entire picture, which is why we end up placing all our hopes of change on the consumer. But I don't think they are the most powerful in any sense because they are bound by uh, societal expectations of what they, you know, I mean, you you buy clothes primarily to to fulfill a certain societal expectation, right? You, you show up to a party mm-hmm. or you show up to a work in a certain way. You need to look a certain way. 
you can afford a certain kind of clothing based on how what your you know social position is and largely based on what is available for you to purchase so even before you make that choice as a consumer there's already so much that is predecided for you that that is very much out of your control immediate control so i think that uh just made me very clueless about you know okay so if consumers are enabled and constrained by this you know social norms and the larger physical environment then i i really need to understand them you know what is happening beyond that and that kind of yeah kind of helped me move away from just i mean i, I think consumer action and consumer advocacy still plays a very big role but it can't be your only like uh tool in your toolbox to say you know this is how we'll get to sustainable fashion for the industry That's so interesting that what you said about the end consumer's power because I can in, in China for well you know people advocate uh, uh, natural fiber clothes like cotton or nylon of course and uh, they don't like uh, synthetic uh, fabrics for very obvious reasons for all kinds of reasons but When you observe it, you realize the majority of population they they would never choose cotton or nylon. They would always choose synthetic. Why? Because if you buy if you buy a cotton pants, you will see what it means. It gets wrinkled or the cotton skirts, right? It's not nice looking in the office or you go to meet your client. So who always consume? Who can always consume cotton or nylon clothes? People who don't need to care about this social influence in their social interactivities. So in the end, as you said. Before we made this choice, before we were we were encouraged to do our conscious consuming, there are lots of uh, factors already play inside. Think about our social function, our social roles. Yeah, and I think it's also a lot to ask of a consumer because like these challenges are so complex that understanding them really requires a significant investment of time. And not everybody has that. I think. I mean, a lot of people will point to the barriers in terms of the barriers to shopping sustainably as financial, which sure can be part of it. But a lot of it is also, I think, time. And even me, sometimes somebody who has worked in the industry, who's you know incredibly passionate about wanting to change the industry, sometimes I'm like, I don't know where to where to buy this, or like, especially stuff like. Uh, you know, undergarments or something that I you don't you know you're more nervous about purchasing online because probably the fit won't be quite right, and you really need to try them on. And you can find sustainable options, but they're not near you. So then you have to buy online, and this has happened to me. Then I buy it online, and then it doesn't fit right, and then I end up getting rid of it. And so in the end, I decide, well, actually, maybe the most sustainable option is to just buy. You know, from a company that I know I don't really support, but at least I know it will fit, and I'll keep it for a long time. You know, but <laughs> the number of years of education and work and thinking that went into that conclusion is not something that's reasonable to expect of everyone. I don't think.、Completely、you know, agree with you. Yeah. So, what is reasonable to expect of consumers? Do you think? I think、hmm, that's a really good question, and I was stuck thinking about it. I think I keep going in circles, but I think、um, I really think consumers, like most people at large, want good things for other people and for the planet. So having that faith that you know, if if we create the right enabling conditions for consumers to choose right, they will. 
I, I think it's reasonable to not look at consumers as just consumers. And I, I think I keep my theory of change is largely, I think India has a lot of faith in the role of government, but like just, I keep coming to the same point that, you know, exercising other muscles of our identity, like consumer is one identity of us as people, but like, we're also part of communities, we are citizens, we have a say in how, you know, some of these big decisions get made in different ways. We can, if if we allow us to feel that we are powerful, we have a lot of power in, in many different ways and we can exercise that. So I think it is reasonable for for people to advocate uh, to create these enabling conditions for them uh, in, in varying degrees. But I think uh, to feel entitled that, you know, some something is out there in the market and, you know, people should buy it because it's it's the right thing to do. I, I don't think that's reasonable unless you create the right conditions. What do you think those conditions are? Can you give an example? Right. And I, I go back to, so I, I don't have a sustainable fashion analogy on this, but I go back to the question of uh, mobility, for example, right? So if you take the example of public transport, um, in a city like Bangalore, public transport is quite expensive for the really poor people. What they um, find easier is they have easy financing mechanisms to buy a two-wheeler. And then they end up buying a two-wheeler and it's easier for them. There are very few buses in the city. So they're very overcrowded. So you're kind of creating an infrastructure which is uh, pushing people to towards more private ownership of vehicles. And what that ends up doing is it puts more vehicles on the road and it creates more congestion and more pollution, which means that buses on the road will slow down. And uh, people like me who can afford to buy a car, we buy a car, we find buses a big nuisance. So you are, what you're doing is taking, so reducing some of these large collective questions to, you know, what we should be doing as a society, what's good for all of us, to questions of individual preferences does that, right? And it creates mm. this loop of success to the more successful where uh, the more vehicles are there on the road, uh, the less there will be the right conditions for the bus to, you know, go freely on the road. And the more it will push people to keep buying more vehicles. So you're just like, creating these uh, perpetual loops that you will find hard to get out of. Right. So maybe the responsibility of the consumer is to somehow find ways of, or maybe instead of reducing the power of the consumer to individual choice, the power of the consumer is to engage in these conversations about collective good and what we want our society to look yes. like. Exactly what I mean when I say we should be flexing our citizen muscles a little more also. While, yeah, so I mean, mm. when you're in the market choosing things, maybe don't think about all this. But when you're home and you're there's a choice on, you know, uh, on somehow engaging with these larger collective good questions, and I, it inevitably comes down to the, you know, word of politics, which has become a dirty word for some reason. But where else will you address these questions of collective good? The market is fairly inadequate to do that in a fair way. Uh, and maybe even we'll, a democracy uh, saying that is perhaps, I don't know, entitled. It'll look very different. That's what I yeah. was just going to ask. I was going to ask, like, Jesse, when you hear this, what do you think? Or, like, what would you say to people who live in countries who maybe where their government has no interest in representing what c collective, a collective good of some kind, however you might define that, or where you're not, you, you don't have necessarily representation in the same way? I would really not put that expectation on them and then what what my response would be is 
uh, that you know to, in in this day and age we have transnational companies companies which have which can have offices in these countries and we can produce effectively in these countries but we don't have transnational mechanisms to govern these impacts of these companies right so i think what we're trying to do is we've created this uh, entity that can go into these different kind of political economies and does its thing but our response to governing it comes from very like different nodes which can be very inconsistent and then from a state system right. yeah. and then i don't know what's the response i mean it goes into like really meta territory but uh, mm. i i wouldn't expect those people to then yeah risk their lives and protest against the government <laughs> i think that would be ridiculous i would sit home and shut up <laughs> <laughs> I somehow doubt that. I I think the, the question is a really good question. What can what is the reasonable expectation we can have to the end consumers? But then I I got an idea from what you said, Hansika. Actually, we should uh, we should uh, defer the consumers too. No, I mean consumer one and the consumer two are definitely not the same. Consumers who can buy Chanel and the consumers who just buy I don't know. Uh, who just go to like super, yeah, warmer. They are definitely different. And our expectations or our responsibilities, of course, are totally different. So, so yeah. So for me, I would expect people who can, who can afford a certain brands. I think they have higher, much higher responsibilities. They also have much higher education. So I would expect them willing to know more. I, I would like to push them to know more and to, to buy more in a more responsible way. And for people who are really struggling, who are really struggling of, of their daily life, there is not much expectation we can put on them because they are struggling for their daily life three meals already. It's, it's all, it's uh, the rest, it, the responsibility is on the shoulders of the rest of the society, actually, to create a better condition. And I think it speaks to like the layers of privilege, right? Yeah. Because Jesse, you just differentiated between consumer one and consumer two based on income. But Hansika, you differentiated between consumers based on nationality and citizenship. And I think those things can overlap, right? Because you can have a person within the United States who's maybe low income, but still in a position of power and privilege because of their citizenship and their representation in a government in an ability to influence a particular government versus somebody who is maybe very wealthy. Like I think about Cambodia, Cambodia has some extremely wealthy people by any standard, you know, the number of luxury cars you see roaming the streets of Phnom Penh is just like mind boggling. And yet, um, well, that's maybe not a good example because those people are probably implicated in government, but like, and have gotten their money through their ties to government. But, but in general, what I mean is you could have somebody who is incredibly wealthy, who does not have the privilege of a government who in some, even if it's imperfect or falls short of its ideals in some way, shape or form, it's aspires to represent the interests of its people, you know, and I say that I qualify that because I know there are a lot of Americans who would say, well, our system is broken too. And our system doesn't represent the interests of the Americans. And yes, all of that is true, but it's all on a spectrum. Yeah. Right. And it at least does it better than some other places. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So if we try and articulate what we expect of consumers, it's something about engaging in a conversation about collective good. What do we want our society to look like? And doing so in a way that is 
cognizant of the fact that not all consumers are alike and what that looks like for different people in different situations might therefore also be different. And I hope that doesn't feel too abstract and that it sort of offers maybe a framework for if there are consumers listening to this conversation to sort of take stock and say, okay, what are the boundaries? How can I, in what way can I participate in this conversation? And how can I try and push those those boundaries as far out as I can. And that's the perfect place to pause this conversation. We hope you enjoyed it. And please come back next week to hear part two, when we'll talk to Hansika about systems level change and what that means for her. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.